This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hello and welcome to Rand. I'm Jim Hosek, a senior economist at the Rand Corporation and the moderator of tonight's discussion. I've studied issues affecting U.S. service members for much of my career, with an emphasis on personnel compensation and retention. Recently, I testified before the U.S. Senate Veterans Affairs Committee on findings from a large and still-growing body of RAND research on the effects of prolonged deployment on service members and their families. It's my pleasure to introduce you to our speakers. Terry Schell is a senior behavioral scientist at RAND. His work focuses on post-traumatic stress disorder in civilians and service members who have served in Iraq and Afghanistan. He has authored numerous publications at RAND and most recently authored a report focused on the needs of veterans living in New York. Jonathan Schleifer is the policy director for the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. IAVA is the largest nonprofit, nonpartisan organization for veterans of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Jonathan is responsible for their legislative agenda and oversees their research projects and policy developments. And with that, I'd like to uh, turn the floor over to Jonathan. Thank you. And uh, first of all, I think one, one of the first things I need to observe as a difference between the Vietnam generation and, and the current generation of veterans is that you probably couldn't fill a room like this to have this conversation um, so soon after the, the, the Vietnam War, and, and even during it, right? I mean, we're, we're still... We're still very much in, in Iraq. I mean, we're pulling out as we speak, and we're certainly in Afghanistan. This, this conversation would not have happened back then. And I think one of the, one of the major differences we see is the, the public's enthusiasm for the men and women who have served in Iraq and Afghanistan, regardless of how they feel about the particular conflicts. There's a great enthusiasm in the public sector, in the private sector, within government. I mean, every, we, there is so much support for the men and women coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, IAVA was founded partly with the support of Vietnam Veterans of America. I mean, they, they, the stories they would tell of coming home and being advised to take off their uniform, to put on a hat so that no one could see that they were wearing a high and tight haircut, and to sort of sneak, sneak back in in the middle of the night. And now, um, when, when the men and women come back from Iraq and Afghanistan, they're being greeted by applause in the airports. They're being offered uh, you know, beers in the airport bar by, by, by strangers. So they're coming home to a very different space. And that and that's reflects not just in the applause at the airport, but also in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the social sciences and the research you've done. And I certainly need to thank Rand for the incredible work um, that the folks here have done. Um, certainly Terry's work um, has, has certainly changed the way that people look at veterans and think about veterans' issues. But the fact that, that people are exploring veterans' issues while the wars are going on is certainly unique. And so not just applause, but we're getting the research. We're seeing corporations ask, coming to us saying, well, how can we employ more veterans? How do we understand veterans? We have schools coming to us saying, how can we create a more veteran-friendly campus? And we also have one of the most substantial investments in, in veterans, which is the new GI Bill, which passed a few years ago. And over half a million veterans have gone to school almost for free if they're going to, uh, to, to public schools um, and, and are going to be coming out. And so the difference is that as we talk, while we're still involved in these conflicts, 
we've begun to speak about the veterans of these two, two wars as the new greatest generation, modeling them not in the Vietnam War, um, in which the veterans were not received well, um, and the conflict wasn't received well, but on, but on World War II, where the country rallied behind the veteran population and, and held them up. And we're hoping to see veterans becoming the CEOs and the presidents of universities and, and the great policy thinkers, ideally one day president, bringing those experiences, bringing those skills, and, and sharing that, and, and, and really serving America even after they've taken off the uniform. Yeah, I, would, uh, I can follow up on that a little bit. That the, one of the differences that, that was just mentioned was that uh, there was very little known about uh, the issues facing Vietnam veterans as they were returning from the war. Um, there wasn't a great deal of research. In fact, some of the problems that they were facing weren't even sort of codified as, as clinical issues yet. And so we don't have really good data, for instance, on the level of problems facing, uh, like psychological problems, facing Vietnam veterans at the moment they returned, because we didn't even know to study it. Um, uh, that's changed a lot, and, and we're getting reasonably good measures of, of the status, the health status, the basic epidemiology of, of the problems facing these people for this war, and we've been getting it uh, all along. Uh, that, having said that, it makes it kind of hard to make comparisons um, between this generation and the prior generation in terms of mental health because we don't really have equivalent measures in large part because we weren't tracking the health back then. It, didn't, it wasn't uh, apparent to us that there was a problem here for several years. By the time we started tracking the health of Vietnam-era veterans, um, we found fairly high rates of problems uh, about roughly, we'll talk a little bit more later, but uh, roughly comparable with what we're finding with this war. Um, that the, the level of problems people are having uh, adjusting, handling a post-traumatic stress disorder or depression following combat is comparable now to what we found in the mid-70s with, with Vietnam-era veterans. So in general, there's a lot of comparability in that regard. Having said that, there are quite a few differences between this generation of veterans and the Vietnam-era veterans in terms of their health. Um, one of the most notable is that uh, this era of veterans is actually returning with relatively low rates of substance use problems and relatively uh, sort of standard levels of drinking, which wasn't the case for people returning from the Vietnam era wars. And there's, there's probably a lot of reasons for that, including the fact that the, the military is now a very selected organization of volunteers who, who, who join, and when they join, they know they're going to get drug tested. Uh, if, if you... Uh, if your goal or was interest was using drugs, you'd, you'd probably go to college inst instead of <laughs> into the military. Um, but it means that these, these are, they are facing a different problems, and on some level, they're a, they're a much more selected force than we were dealing with back then. These are, these are highly selected people. Um, and, uh, and so one of the benefits we are seeing relative, or the differences we're seeing that, that's very positive, is that they, they don't, they're not showing, at least not now, high rates of substance use or high rates of, of alcohol misuse. Um, that, that isn't to say there aren't significant numbers who need help with these issues, um, but of course there's a significant number in the general population that need help with these issues. Um, Terry, can you give, give us an idea of the, of the numbers involved? Or yeah, the so, so um, we're finding about one in five ser uh, service members who returns or veterans has, um, has some evidence of a mental health problem, significant mental health problem, and that's about evenly split between post-combat depression, which can be a very long-lived problem, <laughs> and, and the PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, for substance use, we're finding very, very low rates um, on the order of a couple of percent uh, who use any substance 
at all. Uh, single digits mostly. Um, 10%, I believe, if you include marijuana, which is quite a bit better uh, than uh, the general population in this age range. Remember, these are mostly people who are in their 20s. Um, uh, so their rates are actually reasonably low relative to the general population. Jonathan, how do you think that interacts with employability of veterans? In terms of the who, who's coming in? Yes. Um, in some, of the, some of the veterans who are returning have PTSD or depressive disorder. Uh, many of them do not, right. uh, but even those who don't have some challenges to get reemployed. And and I think the vast majority don't have have the issues that were just described. Right. And I think that's uh, it's something that we need to be very careful about as as an organization that advocates loudly for the needs of veterans coming home, and particularly those who have who are, who are dealing with mental health injuries. We often want to remind the public that they exist, and we want to see them treated. But we also want to make very clear that. Not everyone, ha not everyone is dealing with, with a, a, a mental health injury. And also, even those who are, I think we're, we're in a place now where we're actually addressing it on, on, the, on the front end and, and not trying to catch up 20 and 30 years later. We know that there's a, there is a stigma, though. You know, I think a lot of employers have expressed to us concern that there might be a Rambo vet in, and, and they're concerned about hiring veterans. They don't quite understand what the veterans did. And, and the other piece is that you know, one of the things that we've seen that's, that's was true in Vietnam and still true today is there's a military-civilian divide. Um, we know that uh, veterans ex have experiences and express this clearly, as well as um, civilians. And they, they not, the, the civ veterans don't feel like the civilian public really understands what they went through. And um, veterans know that civilians don't understand what they went through. And a lot of the work that we're trying to do is actually help to, to bridge that divide. On the employment front, we have employers come to us, and they, they don't know how to communicate with veterans to understand what they did. They don't know how to translate being an infantryman into doing something when they come home. They don't know what it means to be a combat medic. We have members of ours who come in, and they, they, they were combat medics. It's a really good example of where the disconnect is. Combat medics who have done incredible things in the field save lives, and they come home and they're not allowed to do intake at a hospital because they haven't taken the prerequisite courses at the local community college. Or we have, or, or on the, an, another example would be someone who's driven a truck, so has, has, you know, really fast on a highway in the middle of the night, worried about IEDs, and they can't get a commercial truck driver's license when they come home. And so there's, there is this disconnect and concern about PTSD and depression, as well as a general, mis, you know, um, breakdown in the understanding of what, it, of what someone who was in Iraq or Afghanistan did while they were over there and how it could actually serve a, an employer when they get back. So we're going to come back to both employability and health care issues, so, just so you know. And I'm transitioning back to, to Terry right now to ask a little bit about the efficacy of treatment and the long-term course of, P, of PTSD and major depressive disorder. So one, one of the things that, that is there's both a, a good news and a challenge is that, um, on, the, on the good news, is that we, we are not where we were in the 70s with regard to understanding the, the, the mental health problems that people come back from combat with. Um, we have uh, relatively effective treatments um, that, that really do a pretty good job, certainly of managing symptoms, and in many cases uh, showing real long-term improvement. Having, having said that, the long-term course for these disorders, people sort of need to recognize is there's sort of stable, chronic, reoccurring conditions, and that the expectation that, that these are going to go away or that this problem is a phase that the VA has to deal with until people get over their PTSD is somewhat unlikely. 
Um, we know certainly from the Vietnam era veterans that the rates of these problems stay relatively constant over time. Um, uh, even 20, 30, 40 years after they return, um, the treatments are better. We can manage the symptoms. The disability associated with them uh, can be reduced compared to what it used to be. But this is not a short-term policy problem for the VA or for the rest of society. And I should be clear not to highlight the VA too much. Uh, a lot of this service is being provided outside of the VA for people who have other sources of private insurance. So this affects all the health systems. Um, but but it is a long-term problem that's not going away, and we, we need to make sure we have a plan for dealing with this long-term um, sort of service-connected injury uh, even after the public attention for the wars have died down. So if I understand what you're, what you're both saying, we have on the order of 20%, 15 to 20% with PTSD or major depressive disorder, and about 80% or slightly more without. Right. And the PTSD and major depressive disorder could have a long career, a long-lasting impact. And at the same time, the veterans who return without PTSD or major depressive disorder, as veterans in the past have, faced the challenge of re-engaging with the economy and society. So could you say a bit more about the 80% and perhaps... Uh, the, the programs underway, the challenges they face, especially in an economy where the unemployment rate has been above 9% for a while? Do you want me to take Please, that? yeah. 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 And, and the one thing I just want to add is even, even among the population that has PTSD, the way it's expressed, like the, the symptoms vary dramatically. So you have some people who have, you know, they, they have liminal, limited behavioral impacts. They, they feel uncomfortable in certain situations. They've, all, they've developed mechanisms for dealing with it, and they have a highly, highly functioning um, life, even, even with PTSD. And others, uh, and others deal with much more extreme cases, and it's incredibly disruptive to their life. And we're, we're working, and the VA is working, to find ways and interventions to help them. So I think it's important to sort of mm -hmm. describe that full spectrum of experience because we don't want people to assume that sort of there's, there's one cookie-cutter sort of PTSD vet. I think it's very important to, to clarify that. In terms of what's out there, um, in term, I think there's a lot, a lot is unknown still. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of different modalities that are being tried. Again, what's exciting about where we are now is that we're researching and we're investigating. We, we, there, everything from, from yoga to virtual reality simulators to meditation, um, as well as pharmaceutical interventions. I think we're, we're in this place now where a lot of people are putting a lot of energy and resources behind it. And what we want to just be sure of is as the, the war in Iraq comes to an end, as the war in Afghanistan comes to an end, as we're not seeing headlines that involve these foreign policy um, challenges, that the country doesn't sort of move on. That as, as the country decides that we don't want to talk about or think about Iraq or Afghanistan, that was, a, that was, a, that was a, an issue of the 2000s to, you know, to 2011, 2012, and they want to move on to something else, that we don't forget about the men and women who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and the... Uh, the issue that about the 80%, and, and I should yeah. say it's really 100%, because even those with mental health problems right. still need work, yeah. and they still can do work. Um, but this issue of, of how they're adapting to the job market, it's worth noting that when we do studies of veterans and you ask them what issues they're most concerned with, issues related to underemployment, employment that doesn't utilize what they believe are the skills they've developed, as well as unemployment, where they can't actually find a job, are very, very high on the list. And, and along with that is, is issues managing, trying to figure out whether they need additional education, how to get it, how to navigate the bureaucracy of getting your GI Bill benefits, 
all these things are their much bigger concerns for most veterans. Um, and it's really heightened now because of the unusually high employment rate, uh, which has is, is really affected the, the last three years of, of people who've left the service. And, and just to add to that, I mean, to, to put some numbers behind it, last month the, veteran, the unemployment rate nationally for veterans was three percentage points higher than the general public. Yeah. It was nine for nationally, and it was 12.1 percent for the for new for new veterans. So it's it's definitely a concern um, in terms of what's being done. Though I mean, there is there is some good news. Last week, the uh, the Senate passed a piece of legislation, the Vow to Hire Heroes Act. Um, it's um, it's going to pass out of the House tomorrow at 12:30 if everything works out as planned. But it's a it's a bipartisan bill that has the president's support, has the the chairs of both the House uh, Veterans Affairs Committee and the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, and the, the components are quite smart. And and we're we're excited to see the only um, jobs bill to pass out of the out of this Congress to be a veterans bill because I think it does speak to the national sort of support and consensus around employing veterans. Quickly, the bill does, does three things. First, it incentivizes employers to hire veterans who have been, un, who have been unemployed, a, a greater incentive to hire veterans who have been unemployed longer than six months, those who are, who are really struggling. Um, you know, that's a tax credit. It, it, it uh, funds a study, a massive study, and, and often when D.C. wants to kill something, it studies it. This is actually not one of those studies. This is a smart study because what we're looking to do is figure out how a veteran can translate the skills that they learned in the military, the experiences they had, and into the civilian workforce. And there's, there's sort of a black box between military experience and civilian experience. And so this study, funded by this bill, will figure out how to translate those skills from the military service to the civilian space and also figure out a lot of the licensing issues in between to deal with the medics and the truck drivers and, and cases like that that I mentioned before. And, and, and the third component is to actually improve the way that we train veterans as they leave the military. Right now, everyone who separates has the option in some cases, or it's mandatory in others, to go through a transition, uh, a transition assistance program. That program has not been updated in 17 years. The corporate space has changed a lot in the last 17 months, let alone the last 17 years. So we're working with Department of Labor. They're upgrading the TAPS program, the, the transition assistance program, but we're also going to put a lot of energy to make sure that it's mandatory for everyone so that we make sure that anyone leaving the military is being given the tools um, to actually enter the civilian workforce. The, the Obama administration, the White House, has also, is also looking to creating what they're calling a reverse boot camp, which is going to also put as much energy into helping um, service members leave um, their service as they did in helping them integrate it on the, on the front end as well. And so hopefully by, by 12.30 Eastern time tomorrow, that bill will be done. It will be to the President's desk, and we'll have made a major movement towards uh, legislating um, to help create, incentivize, and train veterans. And on the other side, there's a lot of corporate enthusiasm around employing vets. There's a lot they don't know how to do right, and I th mm -hmm. but there is that energy and enthusiasm towards hiring them. Terry, do you have any thoughts to offer about the relationship between uh, health conditions and employability, the long-term course? Yeah, well, I think um, that, that's a good question. The, uh, we did a study uh, as part of the Invisible Wounds study in which um, we looked at the, at the costs of health care for mental health problems. And, and what we find is that it's true that the treatment for mental health doesn't necessarily cure the disease, mm -hmm. but it does make people less functionally impaired and, and uh, because that makes them hold better jobs, be more productive, it, it more than pays for itself. And so I think we need to look at the, the intersection between the health problems, and in particular the mental health problems, but also the physical health problems uh, that veterans are facing, 
and and what their long-term productivity potential is mm-hmm. and use the VA not just as a way to to uh, treat the complaints of, of veterans but to think more broadly about uh, maximizing the potential that, that this highly selected group of individuals had uh, uh, prior to combat. Right. Do you have some thoughts to offer on the effectiveness of the new GI Bill? Certainly. Um, we, we know that close to half a million veterans have, have already used it to go to school. Um, many, many on my, on my team back in, in, at IVA have gone to school on the new GI Bill. Our, great, our best interns have gone to school on the new GI Bill. And it's a great program. It was a fantastic upgrade from the Montgomery GI Bill in that the current GI Bill pays for schooling. It pays for so, so, so tuition, housing, book stipend. It really allows a veteran to put all their energy in focusing on their studies. Uh, a couple of challenges. Um, we know that there is a disconnect. The, the, the same military-civilian divide that we saw that I described in the general public definitely exists on campus. We know a lot. We have one of, one of the, uh, the vets who who is a member of IVA, Tyler, has had to switch schools. He described when on his first campus he got there, and he had no way to connect to the 18-, 19-year-olds who were in his classrooms. His freshman year was post-deployment to Afghanistan. Their freshman year was post-senior prom. And they had a, a very different experience. And he, he ultimately decided that he had to move to a more veteran-friendly campus where there are more Marines, more people who could sort of share the experience that he went through. And so that's certainly one of the challenges we're seeing, campuses that aren't quite ready to embrace and support and, um, and celebrate the, the, the veterans who are coming in. We also know that there are some, there are some of the for-profit schools out there that have been targeting veterans to bring them into, into their schools in order to be able to get federal funding but actually aren't delivering on the education that they are being, that they are being promised. Uh-huh. Um, but there are, the good news is we were able to upgrade the new job last year to improve it, to add uh, vocational training. So not only will you be able to use your new GI Bill benefits to go to school um, in, in uh, traditional universities, um, but you can also now use it to go to vocational schools as well, which is much needed in the current economic environment. So in, in today's military, the military offers a wage uh, pay that is substantially above the civilian wage. The military pay system stands at about the 80th percentile of civilian wages for individuals with comparable characteristics. When individuals leave the military, they have a serious adjustment to make. That higher wage in the military is necessary to bring in the quality and quantity of personnel that the military needs. But when individuals leave the military, they need to find a job. It's hard to find a job in today's economy, and they often are faced with the prospect of getting a median wage, 50% above, 50% below, as opposed to a wage at the 80th percentile. Uh, There's also the question of the fraction of veterans who have the need for either some physical therapy or some uh, behavior health uh, care, as we've been discussing tonight. The move toward the new GI Bill, which I asked about, um, I asked about because there was a substantial increase in veterans' benefits so that it's now set at the level of the state, uh, state university tuition level, and that varies by state. So re- whatever school a veteran gets into, the veteran can be fairly well assured that the tuition cost and some additional expenses will be covered. Many veterans today are, have high AFQT scores, that means high cognitive functioning, and they also come into the service in, in uh, the enlisted force with at least a high school degree and in the officer force, same as ever, with college or more. 
but still in today's economy with unemployment ranging at upwards of 9% now for several years and with a very high fraction of individuals working part-time for economic reasons, meaning that they would like to work full-time but can't find full-time work. It's now eight, I think it's 12 million instead of 8 million. This is a very tough economy for veterans to enter. And so the fact that the GI Bill has been increased and that veterans can take advantage of it and can, uh, under this new legislation, receive counseling upon exit from the military, counseling and guidance um, is going to be very helpful. But uh, the, current, the Congressional Budget Office is anticipating it'll be another two or three years anyway before our economy returns to its uh, sort of normal level of growth. And uh, that makes it very hard on today's exiting generation of veterans. Um, in, uh, we're nearly out of time. We have a few more minutes. I'd like each of our speakers to say a few words about what they see as key longer-term issues facing today's generation of veterans. Uh, Terry, may I ask you to yeah. start? I already alluded to what I think is a, one of the, the longer-term challenges we face is, is realizing that the, the, the effects of combat on mental health appear to be relatively long-lasting. And I think that we need to be prepared for a long-lasting response to that, both on the, the treatment side as well as on the research side. So we keep developing new treatments. We keep finding out what works and what doesn't to guide practice in a way that better serves the veterans who've sacrificed for the country. Um, and I think that, that is a long-term issue. And, I, and I've been talking mostly about mental health. I'd also like to talk very briefly about uh, traumatic brain injury because it's a, a very um, it's a topic that is in many reports on the the effects of these wars, um, and and this is a place where in the future we need a much more research because we know very little about the effects of these events that occurred to people during the deployments, and we don't know the extent to which there's uh, there are long-term effects of these that may reduce the potential that, that these people have to be productive. Um, and so this is a very, it's a big issue right now that we don't know what the long-term effects are outside of a very small number of people who have TBIs that are relati relatively severe. But for the vast majority, we don't know whether to anticipate long-term effects or whether there will be no long-term effects of these events. And so this is another area in which I think there's really a great need going forward to figure out are these people really injured? And if so, is there, what can we do about it? Um, and we, right now, we simply don't have an answer to that question. We don't know whether there's ongoing injuries uh, from those events. And so that's another thing that in the future, we're really going to have to grapple with in order to, to, uh, to uh, equitably meet the needs of these veterans. Thanks. And I would say in terms of challenges, I think, you know, as I said before, I think capturing the public's attention and maintaining that attention for years to come, I think, is going to be key. There's been a lot of enthusiasm around supporting veterans, especially around 11, 11, 11. People love that, like, the palindrome, and there's a lot of excitement around <laughs> it. And, you know, biggest parades yet. But what's going to happen when the numbers aren't as quirky? And that's, 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 our, that's, that's our concern, because we want to make sure that we have everyone's attention focused on these issues. We know what they are. Like it, right? Everyone can name the challenges veterans are going to face. It's going to be about housing. It's going to be about jobs and education. It's going to be about be dealing with uh, post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury, all the depression. We know what they are. What we need to see is we're, our biggest challenge is going to be keeping the public's attention around these issues. But even more important than sort of looking at the challenges is, I think, reminding everyone of the opportunities that veterans provide. 
I, I called I called this generation of veterans the new greatest generation, and I think we need to have everyone embrace that mentality and understand that states should be competing to have veterans move to them, which means that they need to legislate on the state level to make it more attractive for veterans to move there. Schools should be competing to be the most veteran-friendly campus so that they are creating policies and support groups around veterans and bringing those veterans with their experiences into those classrooms. And, and, and as, as a government, we want to make sure that, we have, that we've created an environment where everyone's excited. And finally, corporations should be competing to be the most veteran-friendly corporation, which means, again, creating a, a safe environment, a healthy environment, supportive environment, creating mentorship opportunities, and, also, and, and, and identifying who the veterans are and holding them up as examples of the best of what can be, of, of the best of what our country has to offer. Thank you both. Um, this is truly a challenging time for our veterans. Um, but it's also a time, hopefully, with some opportunities for them. The veterans today represent a small fraction of the United States population. With today's volunteer force, as it's increased in, in effectiveness and with the end of the Cold War, the number of individuals in the military has decreased from on the order of 3 million to less than, to around 2 million, depending, a little over 2 million. That's producing fewer veterans. The veterans who serve are less likely to be wounded and killed. However, the wounds that emerge from today's battles, battlefields tend to be more severe. Why is that? More severe on average. And that's because individuals live today, whereas in the past they would have died. Um, we have on the order of just over 5,000, I think, maybe 6,000, I'm not certain, deaths from our campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan. We have on the order of 50 to 60,000 seriously wounded veterans. We have a veteran population since 9-11 of around 2.1 or 2.2 million. So the you know, while it's extremely important to focus and recognize fatalities and serious injuries, it's also important to recognize the entire generation of veterans who are emerging. These are unusually gifted individuals. They've had great training. They've had great experience. They've done service in their country. And now many of them are in the process of reengaging with society and the economy. Um, many of them have very high cognitive skills, and many of them will seek education through the new uh, enhanced GI Bill. Uh, many of them, however, will also go directly to employment and benefit to some extent from the general skills they picked up in the military, skills having to do with communication, teamwork, reliability, loyalty, uh, things that have served veterans well in the past. Other RAND research underway right now, and I'll turn it over to questions in just a minute, indicates that when veterans leave the military, they do experience, as one might expect, a significant decrease in their earnings. But after uh, five or six years, I believe it is, as they've adjusted to the economy and they've found work, their earnings return to and then surpass those of individuals with comparable characteristics. So it's a very dynamic and, and moving picture. The emergence of behavioral health care as a major field and behavioral health challenges is, is a hallmark of the current generation. The emphasis on improved educational benefits and adjustment activities is something we can look to with pride, but there's still a long way to go. Um, with that and with these uh, terrific contributions, I'd like to open the floor to questions and the questions will be taken by our RAND uh, staff members in the audience. Great. 
Thanks so much for this wonderful conversation. Um, my colleague Nora and I will be coming to you, so just keep your hands raised, and we'll try to get to as many questions as possible. What I would like to ask is uh, try to keep your questions brief so we can get to as many questions as possible from the audience. 20, uh, this is for Dr. Shell primarily. 20% of veterans have serious emotional disorders. According to the centerfold, 34% of children are reported by their caregivers to have serious emotional disturbances. Can you explain the discrepancy? Um, uh, you sort of briefly, yes. Um, they're, they're sort of measuring different things, and, and um, what we're measuring in the kids is a considerably less um, severe criteria. So this is merely the... the the sense that the caregiver believes the kids are having problems and they, at, a, at a sort of above a normal rate. Um, whereas what we're talking about with the veterans are these are clinically significant levels of symptoms that are associated with, with real functional impairment. So we're talking about different levels of problems. The, the other issue there is that they're being measured at different times. For the most part, the, the study that looked at the families that, that was referenced in that handout was really looking at people very close to the time of deployment. And that's when the problems of the kids seem to peak. Whereas the problems with the veterans uh, apparently have a longer uh, uh, trajectory. I have a question in the back. My name's Stephanie Stone. I'm with LA County's Veterans Advisory Commission. And one of the things that we've discovered locally in our area here is the issue of military sexual trauma and dealing with the numbers that we have here. Um, I would love to hear from you what, what numbers and what, what you found um, on a national average. Here locally, we can see anything from one out of every five women reporting into the clinics to one out of every three, depending on the study, will report as victims of military sexual trauma. Do you want to speak to the numbers? Yeah. I can, uh, the short answer is we don't know how much military sexual trauma there is. Um, our, the best estimates we have are based on uh, service seeking or, or people seeking clinical care. Um, and the numbers you gave are, are similar to what we what are sort of being found in the VA, I believe. Um, but that is within a population that has problems, and uh, we know that the rates are much higher in that group, the ones that we're monitoring, than the ones that we're not. So we really don't know overall how big a problem this is, but we know it's pretty big. Um, and we're, we're hoping uh, that we can do better and uh, long-term studies uh, of the full population of military service members to try and document what's going on here. It's an issue that no one really wants to study very much, frankly. The, the services would prefer not to talk about it. Um, and uh, and it, it happened before the time of the VA. Um, uh, so it's, it's been difficult to get a good re uh, research on this, but it's certainly a huge issue. And, and I'm afraid I, have, I, I share your questions and I don't have really an answer. Um, and I, I would just add to that. Um, just, uh, just to define the terms, so military sexual trauma usually includes everything from uh, sexual harassment to sexual assault, um, and, and so a lot the numbers generally reflect both, um, bo both of those. Um, and one of the things that we are hearing anecdotally is that it, there's, again, incredible diversity among the different branches, among the different units. Um, the way it's handled changes based on who your, who your officer, who your command is. And so we're, we're, seeing a, we're, hearing, a, we're hearing about it, um, but there's a lot of diversity in experiences. Um, and that's something that I think we, we need to study and understand as well. The other thing that we know is that the VA um, only now is getting used to having 
so many female veterans coming in and, and seeking support and seeking services. And the VA is trying to ramp up as quickly as possible, they tell us, but it's not quite fast enough. And certainly dealing with providing, providing support and services for someone dealing with military sexual trauma is something that they're, they're trying to deal with, but we know they're not there yet. Question to your left. Hi, um, my name is Michael. I'm a uh, mental health clinician at the West LA VA. I work at the uh, OEF OIF uh, post deployment clinic. And uh, a couple of questions, real quick, to Mr. Schliefer. Just the, you spoke about a reverse boot camp. Um, a lot of the multiple deployments that we, we are seeing and going through, the transition is very difficult coming back uh, from military to civilian life. So, um, just anecdotally, I've heard some militaries, they do this kind of uh, decompression, they send out units or the squads or the platoons that they were assigned to, they go out on a little vacation or something around the world. Uh, if you could speak to the uh, feasibility about that, and my other question is to Dr. Uh, Dr. Schnell, I'm sorry if I forgot your name, you spoke about the, uh, the research and the clinician and the treatment um, that is being uh, for behavioral health. Um, I would just like to add um, the community needs to be informed also about the uh, uh, tendency to demonize and pathologize uh, any behavioral uh, issue that veterans uh, ha have certainly. been going through. So, thank you. So, sir, so on the reverse boot camp, there actually it, it's an idea that the White House has floated, and, and there's actually a, a commission that's studying the best way to do it. Um, again, a study. So we'll, we'll see what comes of it. Um, I. I think that the, the, the decompression periods are incredibly valuable from what we've heard. Over and over again, the more time people can spend sort of making the transition from an incredibly intense environment where you're, you're, you're living and sleeping and breathing and brushing your teeth with the same, the same bunch of guys or, and, and gals, and then coming home can be really disruptive. And the more time you give someone to sort of within, within not, not, not extending the amount of time that they're away from their families, but actually creating space within the actual deployment for them to, to, to stop in different places and take time and, and go through counseling if possible and get assessed um, when, when appropriate is definitely valuable. I have a question to your right. Hi, I'm Sharon Gohari from the West LAVA. Um, actually, I'm a staff attending there. I've been there for about three and a half years, and I focus on mild traumatic brain injury. Um, one of the challenges I've seen within the VA is that it's a compensation-based model. Right. So the more problems you have, the more service connection you get. And the fewer problems you have, the less, or you get rated down. Is there any thought about changing this model? There's. <laughs> Sorry, yes. no, that's a loaded question. But it, is, it is. There, I, I know on the, on the political side, like re, revamping that, uh, that model. I mean, you, you described um, one, of the, one of the more profound problems with, with the system, but that it's only one of dozens of issues with. Um, with with the system, and I'd actually recommend Ivy actually came out with a report about two years ago um, called the Red Tape Report, where we actually went through all the challenges in in rating someone and tying their disability rating to the healthcare services that they get, and how how complicated and frustrating it is, and how the DoD has its own system and the VA has its own, and even even if just accounting for all the different things in your application before you can even get your rating is a problem because it means people are being distanced from the services that they desperately need while they're, while they're filling out the paperwork. So um, there, there definitely is a lot of, I would say, interest in, in reforming the process, but 
trying to move the VA um, and, and change that system, it's, it's titanic and trying to, we're not going to be able to turn it on a dime. There are, there are minor interventions that we're trying to, that we've been advocating for and that the VA has been implementing independently that we think are going to go a long way, like digitizing as much of the process as possible, creating presumptions around certain illnesses so that they don't have to demonstrate, um, a veteran doesn't have to demonstrate that they were exposed to, to one thing or the other, that it's just presumed that they can claim it on their forms. There, there are lots of minor interventions that the VA has taken on their own, to much to their credit, that it, we're hoping is going to help speed up the process. And, and I would just say that there, the problem that you raise is raised by many people. Um, I, I'd say that, that this idea that there's a perverse incentives at the level of the individual veteran um, that actually rewards them in many ways for not getting better um, is a concern that many clinicians have, and it's a concern that many veterans advocates have, uh, but it's very difficult to figure out how to address it. So I would say there's interest in changing it, but there's not clear how, because many of the ways that involve changing it could, in fact, take away uh, needed resources from the most injured veterans, or the veterans that suffered most from the service to their country. So so long as the, the vision of the veterans administration is largely to serve to, to sort of serve people for what they've sacrificed for the country, then they're, they're very likely to always have to have some sort of, uh, you know, increased reward, increased uh, services available or compensation available uh, as a function of the severity of the injury, which is always going to have that perverse incentive um, unless we're willing to start providing health care to everybody um, regardless of their, of their injury. But, but it should be clear that, like, the, per, the perverse incentive is not creating an environment where veterans are trying to game the system, right? It, it's, well, there's, I mean, I haven't seen any, any, no. anything reasonable, nor, um, right. So I, I think to be clear, like, veterans who are seeking care, we want to encourage them to seek care. It, we, un, unfortunately, they're trying to navigate an incredibly complex system, but, and, and in some cases, in order to be at the care you need, you have to, you have to get a veteran service advocate, because just managing the application process requires professional legal help. And that's, I mean, that, and that's the perverse part of it, of right. it all. And my recollection, just if I inter might interject a short comment, is that uh, the broad incidence of traumatic brain injury is on the order of, oh, 18%. It's similar to PTSD and major depressive disorder. But one of the unusual things about traumatic brain injury is that the, the distribution of severity is very unusual. A, a very high, my understanding is that a high fraction of individuals who have clinically diagnosable traumatic brain injury actually have a mild case and they might not want to pursue it. And a small fraction of individuals, and I'm not trying to say inconsequential, has serious traumatic brain injury that may take years to resolve and treat and may not be fully treatable. And so it's, it's quite difficult with that pattern to try to figure out a system that correctly encourages people to seek care, but then the system must accurately triage them depending on their difficulty. Please, excuse yeah. me. I have a question in the back. Hi, I'm a grandparent for a uh, Iran and Afghanistan veteran. Uh, actually, he's going to be a veteran next summer. Uh, in the literature, you said that there were significant issues sometimes of getting somebody to admit that they have a problem and to seek treatment. What should I be looking for to help them, to help him uh, identify and, and actually uh, get treatment, or how should I encourage him to get treatment? What should I be looking for to identify there's a problem? Uh, I think that's probably to me. Uh, 
the, the, there are a variety of symptoms that people come back with that indicate the, a probable need for uh, or at least referral, if not treatment. And the symptoms people have um, that are usually observable by others, though, are a limited subset of those. So most of the symptoms are somewhat internal, like, uh, like the depression symptoms, where you, somebody seems to have a profound loss of interest in things they used to find pleasurable. Um, that's one possible symptom. Uh, people who have a, a evidence of, of uh, what we call hyperarousal or startle, exaggerated startle response, where they seem jumpy or edgy, when, where they seem uh, visibly or noticeably upset when you discuss elements of their service or when they're reminded of their service or where they're, when they have uh, uh, anxiety or panic in situations that are uh, actually quite safe but might be reminders of things they've experienced. Those are the sorts of things that an outsider might be able to notice and say, you know, have you thought about talking to somebody about this? Um, and, but uh, many of the symptoms, you know, are internal states that may not have a lot of, uh, of obvious impact that you could, you could sort of uh, look at. Um, and, you know, the other thing you can do is, is tell them that we have a, a range of treatments. A lot of people are very worried about getting uh, uh, drug treatment, and they're worried about the side effects of drugs. And there are some side effects to the drugs that are typically given for these disorders. Um, and uh, you could, if you're worried, if you, if you have a service member that you know that you believe might have a problem, you might mention that there's a lot of opportunities for treatment outside of pharmacotherapy, outside of drug treatment. At, or as an adjunct to drug treatment. So there's a lot of options available to them. Um, and that, that that might make it more appealing to them. I'd also add, I think, I think it's phenomenal that, that as a family member, you're, you're, you're preparing for the return home to, to transition your, um, your grandson or granddaughter back. But I think what, I want to sort of describe an idea what the ideal state looks like. And that has to, it's two things. One is, on, as, as they're coming home, or even during the full deployment, we have we have command and other members of the of of his or her unit paying attention to what's going on and noticing changes of behavior as the deployment is going on. That requires changing the culture in the DoD from one that is often put aside having conversations about uh, mental health injuries and actually educating um, educating officers and educating all personnel about what to look for so they can be supportive. So that's ideally before they even came home, it wouldn't be on you to identify those symptoms. It would be on it, it would be done within within the military where they actually have a really strong support structure. And the second part of it is sort of just I want to offer up IAVA as, as, as a vehicle for supporting them when they come home. One of the things that we've done and we've had a lot of success is we've created what we call Community of Veterans, which is an online space where, veteran, where if, you, if you can show that you've been to Iraq or Afghanistan based on your government documentation, so it's a, it's a secure place where only those who have been there, who have gone through those experiences, um, can enter. They can have conversations about the, the struggles they're having. Imagine Facebook for veterans, Facebook for those who have had a common experience. And we found a lot of, a lot of success. We actually had a couple uh, meet and are engaged to be married based on um, meet, meeting in the community of veterans. But we also have a lot of people go in there and say, you know what, like, I'm having a really hard time when I go out to restaurants um, because it's loud, it's noisy, there's a lot of movement, and I don't know what's going on around me. And then they'll find the support of dozens of, of, of people who have gone through the same thing, who can talk to them about what they've gone through, and often just having someone to share that conversation with, in addition to getting perhaps the pharmaceutical support or the yoga or the, or the talk therapy. That's, that's one of the most powerful things you can do. And so I, I'd refer, refer them to IAVA.org when they get back, and we, we'd love to welcome them home and take care of them. Thank you. 
Unfortunately, we have so many great questions. I haven't been able to get to all of them, and I do apologize. I will say that I know that our researchers and our IAVA staff will be here after the program. So I only have time for one last question, and I, I do apologize for that. Um, sir, if you could. My, my question, I was uh, uh, amazed, Mr. Shell, that we were paid so well in the Army. But uh, <laughs> that's just a joke. But uh, uh, my, my question is, uh, you know, talking with my friends as we've all come back, uh, you know, we, we all get lost from time to time on our way home from, you know, uh, our way home from the fair. And, you know, some of us have had better luck getting our lives together than others. One of the things I've noticed is that, uh, you know, great jobs or a sense of vitality has really helped some of us out. And uh, I'd like you to comment, all of you uh, gentlemen, Mr. Schleifer especially, about uh, the connection to uh, the vitality someone feels when they're serving and then having a job that turns them on afterwards and how that connects to the entire mental health issue, please. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I, I think you, you certainly can speak to the sense of purpose you had um, when, when you were wearing the uniform. I, I know that's consistent. Um, we have that, that same study I mentioned before from Pew that described the military-civilian divide. Service members who have gone through these two conflicts, regardless of how they feel about the conflicts, come back and they feel like they had, they, they had purpose. And they, they were serving a vision. They were serving the flag and the Constitution. And, but, and one of the things that they find disappointing when they get back is they're, if they're on college campuses, they're sitting in a classroom with, with those who don't necessarily feel that same purpose, who don't feel driven. And they are looking for the next, as one of my coworkers likes to say, he wasn't looking for his next job. He was looking for his next mission. He wanted to be part of something bigger and better than himself because that's what he found when he was in the Army. And so I think, I think one of the ways, I think you're, you're spot on. Like, if we can find the ideal places for veterans to be working, whether it's, whether it's driving a truck, if, if, that's, if that's what gives them purpose, or if it's, if it's a CEO of a major corporation or, st or, or running a nonprofit or running for, for president, as long as they have purpose, I think that's probably one of the best things you can do for anyone's sense of self and, and self-empowerment. And I would just say that um, I mean, this is an issue that if you talk to veterans and you survey them, uh, that, that they do find it remarkable that the, that the downtime, the down speed of civilian life relative to what they felt um, in the military, and particularly during periods of combat, and that just the transition to a life in which they don't feel as driven and, and they need help getting you know, direction and purpose in a way they, that it was implicit in the military service is a very difficult transition. Having said that, we don't find a lot of evidence that that's really what's driving mental health problems. I think it's the, the, these clinical problems they're having are... are um, not just a lack of vitality, although I'm, I'm sure that contributes to a, a lower quality of life. Um, and, and, but it, that is the kind of stress that I think almost all veterans feel a little bit awash, a little bit adrift when they leave and they try and figure out, I've been fighting for my country for, for you know, 5, 20 years, whatever their hitch was for, and now I've got to figure out what I want to do with my life. Um, and that, that transition is something where, where you know, the, that is very difficult for many people, um, regardless of whether they have mental health problems. I have a uh, question I'll here in the front. Or Jim, do you have one more comment? Well, uh, just in response, um, if you don't mind. The, um, the military is a very unusual organization, and the volunteer force that we've had since 1973 is a part of the military tradition. The volunteers who come in today are, as you, I'm sure, know, a very highly selected uh, group of young men and young women um, who enter the military uh, 
and find in the military a highly structured environment that begins with boot camp, advanced individual training, assignment to a unit, learning on the job, and these days very likely the prospect of, of deployment once, twice, or perhaps more, depending on how long they stay in. They typically stay in the military, depending on the service, on the order of six years, something like that, maybe seven years. And the military provides a high level of structure. It has a hierarchy of command. It has specific missions to which individuals train. We've been in a, a situation of deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan so that the military is not simply about preparedness, which is important in its own right, but it's about deployment and engagement in activities in hostile areas, and then the return, and of course the side effects of that, some of which involve very good things, such as learning teamwork, communication, um, deepening their their skills and their general skills, and then some come back, of course, with uh, behavioral issues, with mental health issues, with physical wounds. These days, a smaller fraction than before. So if I can focus just for a second. In the military, in our volunteer force, individuals who enter the military are paid at about the 80th percentile of the civilian wage distribution for comparable individuals. When they leave, they can reasonably expect to get a median wage, half above, half below. For many of them, that's a reduction in pay. Often what happens, and we have RAND, and I believe there's other research uh, behind this, is that when individuals leave the military, the first few years are years of adjustment. Those years of adjustment have been worsened recently because of the high and prolonged unemployment, the deepest recession we've ever had. Um, these days, it's not uncommon for veterans like others to be unemployed for six months and up. But historically, or I should say looking at the past 15 or 20 years worth of data, what happens is that veterans who come out initially have a lower wage than comparable individuals, but after five or six years, their wage actually equals and then rises above those of others. There is definitely a period of adjustment. Many veterans believe that the skills and teamwork and the camaraderie that they learned in the military carry forward well, but nonetheless they're into the civilian world, but there's a real period of adjustment required. It's not an easy transition. Obviously, not everybody makes it, but uh, many do. And so... Um, I don't know if that helps address some of your concerns. I'm sure any of us could go on further, but uh, it's sort of like it's a tr you know the today's active all volunteer force or reserve volunteer force is a highly trained, focused unit of individuals uh, with subunits, of course, and different services. And when they come out, a lot of that structure is gone. So for many, it's a it's, on the one hand, a very sheltered and structured environment that has significant risks and sometimes some real consequences, adverse consequences. But when they come out, that level of structure and hierarchy is not there. The assurance of a job, that is the military, you know, employs you at a certain wage, that, that's not there. It's replaced by a risk. And individuals need to determine what their place is in our economy. And it takes a while to adjust. And then generally speaking, and I base this on data that we have for RAND studies, service members who exit initially have a decrease in pay, and then after five or six years, it's actually higher than comparable individuals. We now have time for one last question. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm a uh, psychiatrist, and a few years ago, I wrote a book called PTSD for Dummies in the Dummy series. 
and I was focused on the kind of pathological side of things. I now write a, a career advice column in the Sunday LA Times in the business section, and I'm more focused on the positive things. So, so can I make a positive comment to the grand, grandfather over there that maybe addresses you? I think if, if you ask your grandson, what do you want to be better at? And, and then see what he answers, and then say, what do you need to be better at? It's a different question. And often what will come up is their struggle but when you focus on the pathological side, which I did when I wrote PTSD for Dummies, it keeps people feeling like victims. But when you focus on the solution, it, it, it's a different mind frame. And you'll get to the same information. And when they talk about that, you can get into a conversation. So I hope that helps. Thank you. Jim? Thank you very much. Um, thank you all for your questions. I wish we had time for more. Um, our our uh, speakers here will hang around for a little while for those who wish to follow up with questions. In the meantime, once again, on behalf of the RAND Corporation, um, I'd like to thank all of you for coming and for your interest in RAND, and I hope to see you at future events. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.